Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. On today's episode, we'll be discussing therapy, mental health, and money, and a pandemic, of course. And I have a very special guest, Miss Katie Onatary Hagman, who is a therapist, and she's also the owner of Life and Family Guidance, which is a private practice. She has a brand called Mind Yours. We will have a very thorough discussion on how this pandemic has affected our mental health, of course, our money, and why therapy is so important. Important. Everyone, welcome Katie. Thank you. I'm so happy to be with you, Angel. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining. Katie, we've been knowing each other for a very long time. I'm like almost like how long? Over 20 years. I don't like to tell people my age, but <laughs> a very long time. Um, since I'm right with school. you. <laughs> and we reconnected, I'd say a few years ago, speaking on a regular basis. And it's been interesting just to see your growth and the things that you're doing. I think it's always interesting when you see people that you've sort of grown up with and what they're doing now with their life and to find out that you were into mental health and therapy. I was like, oh, this is so awesome because that's not something that we as African-American people typically discuss. Before I ask about some questions, how about you just tell us what you do and tell us a little bit more about you? Okay, thank you. As you mentioned, I am a therapist in New Jersey, and I have a private practice where I see clients, individual family, as well as groups. I work full-time in a psychiatric hospital, and I deal with co-occurring mental health. That means substance abuse and mental health issues. I also have a brand, which is Ade Self-Care, and I sell products that it's called Mind Yours is the product line. And Mind Yours is just to emphasize products to help you with your mind, body, and soul for you to mind your own mind, body, and soul. There's a lot of therapists out who promote a lot of self-care, but I think that I'm a little different in the sense that I really teach people how to apply self-care because when you're busy, like myself, I also have a husband and I have two kids. And then I do all these other things in my career. I often feel overwhelmed or I feel like I'm not um, showing up enough for my kids or neglecting my husband. I think it's important that when people say, oh, well, you need to take care of yourself, that as therapists, we actually show and tell how do you do this? How do you apply these things in your life? Oh, that's a very good point. You mentioned how you're branding yourself and you have products and services. And I know from what I've seen online, I've seen you have a journal, which was just published. You have shirts. Are there any other products that you have or that you're working on? Yes, thank you. I am working on also a tea line. This will be a loose leaf tea that will emphasize on the importance of if you have anxiety issues, it will be tea that helps you relax. Or if you're feeling down, it'll be an uplifting tea. I'm working on an aromatherapist uh, specialist who can help me with that line. That should be out hopefully by the first of the year. I just want to tell you a little bit about the journal. Our journal is a journal for parents and children. When we give the title of parenting, a lot of people assume that it has to be the mom or a dad, but I wanted to keep it not so specific to mother or or father because there's so many people who have parenting roles. Sometimes it's going to be a grandmother, a sister, 
aunt that have to take on the role of parenting a child. I made this journal for the caretaker and the child to find some engagement because as the kids go through the life cycles and the different stages of child development, sometimes you find that at certain point, there's not that engagement there for you to really understand the child. And the child doesn't know how to really voice what their needs are. Say you have a disagreement with the child and in the moment you're upset and you tell the child, okay, that's it. You can't go to your friend's house or you can't go to the mall. And the child immediately shuts down and go in their room and they harbor all these feelings and emotions and they can't even get it out. But this gives them a time and for the parent a time, take the time to really write out. I really don't think it's a good idea for you to go uh, to your friend's house during there's COVID. I love you and I want you to take care. It gives you a little bit more time to reflect and actually write out your thoughts. Then the child can read it and give a response. This helps with having more open communication and to kind of throw electronics out of the loop because we get so wrapped up in electronics and things. The journal also has affirmations for the parent and the child. There's an emotion listing in the journal, as well as a couple coloring pages, which all helps with child development, child engagement, education, because depending on the age of the child, it will help with writing skills, as well as coloring and mindfulness. Oh, that sounds amazing. I love how you integrated activities for children as well. And you mentioned one thing that's very huge between a child and a parent, which is communication. And I remember when I was a child, and I know this still goes on till today, and if you want to do something, you ask your parents and the answer is just usually no, there's no communication about it. There's no explanation. And sometimes children harbor resentment towards their parents for certain things. Parents don't necessarily communicate with their children as far as the what, the where, the why, the when, the how. I think the why is very important for a child to be involved or try to understand how to communicate themselves from a mental health standpoint at an early age, I think is very healthy. It also helps with cognitive development. I love how you have created this workbook. What was the thought process behind creating this workbook? Is it from working with parents? Is it from working with children? Or what really prompted you to um, create this? All of the above. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely everything. The work that I do with families, my career started actually in a private prison. And I used to work with a lot of uh, fathers we had a parenting program and working with them, they didn't know how to communicate or really understand what child development was. I saw how effective letters were for them to write to their children and for their children to write back. That's where the thought process began. But honestly, it was my son who inspired me. My six-year-old son, I was having a very hard time with getting him to write. Also, he's a left-handed person. People who are left-handed can tell you stories about how they struggle to write. He's learning how to write and things, but he didn't find it to be fun. And early in the early on in child development, school is supposed to be fun. It's not supposed to be something that they dread and don't want to do. I was like, well, how can I make this fun for him? <laughs> early on in the school year, I wrote him a letter, and he's also had been learning to read. He's he's pretty good in reading. I, I wrote him a letter just saying, you're, I know you're going to do great in school. It's a new school. You're going to be excellent. And just simple words for him. And he was able to read it. He tried to write back to me. And the effort that it took for him to write was just 
it was motivational and it was encouraging that, okay, he really tried to write me back, <laughs> but he didn't want to when he was struggling. Then the next day I was, I drew something to him. I drew a picture and it was of myself and how I gave him the positive parts of my, what I like about me. And then I asked him to write it back. He drew a picture. That's just how it started. We just started journaling back and forth and I met him where he was in his development. Writing was a little bit much, but he was able to really draw back. And then now his writing has developed and is still developing. That's how the journal began. That sounds like a very emotional process to go through with your child. We talked about what pushed you to create this journal, this brand, and of course, some of the work that you're doing. But when we think about mental health overall, and even from the point of, of going to college, is this something that you've always wanted to do? Was there something in your life as a child that really pushed you to really get into this field? Let's expound upon that. Yes, I've always been been the child who <laughs> my brothers and my sister, they call me, they used to call me a little old lady because I've always been, I guess, wise for my age. <laughs> <laughs> when they would ask for feedback, I naturally would have it. And then it went on to my friends. I'll tell them, oh, you shouldn't do that because it was just, I was always that person who would give sound advice. When I went to college, I majored in psychology. For me, psychology was very a very hard major. It wasn't what I thought. It was a lot of the base work where you have to learn about all these theories and Honestly, the theories were based on European theorists. It really didn't go as far as I wanted to. I, I graduated and went on and started my career. And when I started my career, I actually ended up working in um, the prosecutor's office and I would help gather discovery for attorneys. And that position was when I wanted to do something to help in the criminal justice system because I found that it was a recidivism issue where people would do the same thing. They'll get in the system and they'll find themselves being stuck in the system. They'll get out the system and come right back. That really inspired me to start to look at how mental health, substance use, how you grow up impacts who you are. And what right impacts your future and how the criminal justice system works against that for people. So the, and it usually ends up being minorities who are struggling with those issues once they enter that system. And the system, the criminal justice system also doesn't really give people who have substance use issues or mental health issues a tap on the back. It's like, okay, this is the situation. Things are starting to get better. There are some programs, but at the time there wasn't really many things. And as we know from what we watch in the news politically, if you call the police and someone's having a mental health crisis, the cops aren't equipped to deal with mental health because what is happening right now? People are dying and getting shot. And then you find out that this person, th their family called them seeking help for the person, not thinking that the cop is going to kill them because they're in crisis at the moment. So there's a lot of stories. 
You mentioned some some things that I wanted to touch on, especially working in a prison. I know for those of us who are listening, for people who've never been in a prison before, we look at that as uh, maybe a very scary position to be in. You're there with other inmates, people who have done minor crimes, people who have done major crimes. Were you ever, ever fearful working in a prison? These were people who were coming back into the community. So there weren't necessarily there were a few people who were uh, convicted of murder in some degree but it wasn't first degree murders or these are people who were coming back into the community and they just needed to have an assessment and evaluations completed usually we'll mostly get drug offense people or people who committed small crimes so was the contact face-to-face? You're sitting next yeah, to Yeah, in person, oh, wow. face-to-face, yeah. That's Only maybe four feet apart. <laughs> no <laughs> no uh, handcuffs, nothing, just free, yeah. I, I want to touch on mental health sort of in this in this pandemic that we're in. I think it's very important to discuss. We've been in in quarantine, this pandemic for the past nine months. And and I look up and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's December already. It's about to be a new year. And most of us haven't been anywhere. We've been sitting in the house, working from home. Some people who don't have that particular option to work from home have already headed back to the office, but life has drastically changed over over the last nine months. We've all had to adapt to a new way of life, juggling family for for some people. And for those who don't want to send their children back to school, they're wearing multiple hats, such as working from home, being a parent overall, and some have really become a teacher. And I think that's been focused on a lot in the news is how parents are having to stop what they're doing in the middle of their day and help their children with their schoolwork, especially adapting to like the virtual learning We also have many people who've lost their jobs. And one thing I knew, and I noticed this, the money issue very early on in the pandemic, whereas it seems as though, and I don't know if you've noticed this as well, the cost of groceries has increased. And I remember going to the the grocery store and checking my bills several times, like, what is going on? I've never spent this much for groceries. And I think they're they're creeping the prices up just a little bit at a time. But Mm -hmm. that affects our our personal budget, that affects our well-being. For those who are already strapped for money or who've lost their jobs, it's it's an additional stress. All of these combined is like enough to make someone lose their mind. And I know for myself, early in the pandemic, I my anxiety level was really high. And I, I just didn't know what was going on or what to expect. And and I had to get a therapist. I remember sitting in my bathroom on my floor, like crying. And I was just so stressed out with everything and, and having to have those calls and have someone talking through it and, and calm me down. So what's your overall outlook on mental health uh, during these last nine months? Ooh, it's so much that happened in these lives last nine months that has to do with mental health. People hadn't really understood the impact at first. Like when it first started, there were so many stories, so many things of anxiety, especially and depression. So at the beginning, when the pandemic first started, it was for some people who had to stay home, it kind of was people assumed it was a good thing in the sense of, well, At least I can be at home with my family, take care of the kids and things. But a lot of people talked about their willingness to do things completely went away. Energy levels decreased. People felt overwhelmed, even though they weren't going anywhere, right? 
So what that looked like for some people was if you're usually a go-getter and you're like time management and you're uh, walking out to make sure your kids are together and you can easily go get money in different ways, all that changed in the sense that everyone was put at a standstill and you had to deal with kids and balancing their schoolwork and the teachers didn't know what was going on at first. So a lot of times they were giving like at home packets to make sure the teach the kids would do it or do put assignments online so the kids can do it. And then you had to balance that. And not only are you balancing schoolwork, but now you're the lunch lady and the maintenance man, <laughs> like cleaning up after kids. And on top of that, you have your job responsibilities where they're wanting all these things. So people's anxiety and, and, and started feeling lonely and low kicked in. And that said, they didn't realize what that was really about. And then later on, as you started getting stronger and balancing all these things, jobs realized they had to do layoffs. And when the layoffs hit, that's not good because as you mentioned, grocery prices were extremely high. So now anxiety kicks in even more because what am I going to do? I can't, there's a pandemic outside. I don't want to get it. So it's just that fear of the unknown or fear of the known. My jobs are, my job is doing a layoff. What am I, how am I going to do this? How am I going to take care of these kids? The kids are always hungry. Or if you have a significant other, you may have found that you are arguing more because when people are typically stressed, they usually don't have a healthy way to let it out because they don't even know what they're dealing with themselves on the inside. They just know they don't feel normal. So usually relationship issues happen. You you have less patience with your kids. You have less patience with your significant other. I, I love how you said patience because I don't have children, but I have nine nieces and nephews. And mm-hmm. even prior to the pandemic, I'd say the last few years, my life has been very stressful where I've been multitasking entrepreneurship and corporate America. And the times where I would go and visit my family, it was always, I would have one or two days for a break, but I was also used to using those one or two days as my downtime. And then just to have children around or family members around who don't necessarily understand your grind, I would easily snap on people. And the last nine months has actually given me time to self-reflect on that, where I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe some of the things that I was doing or how I was treating people. And they didn't necessarily understand I don't think other people understand your level of stress or if you're going through something like a mental health or anxiety issue. I think uh, everyone needs to discuss that a little bit more often with your close friends, with your family members, so people can understand your actions. I, I, I don't even know, and I know you're a parent, but, I, but when I think about what the parents have had to go through in addition to working, I'm always, how are people doing this? This is so much. It, it's a lot just to juggle everything at home and to having a Zoom call every 30 minutes. I feel like we're working more. Then you have all this, this, you're overwhelmed with so much stuff. And then we didn't even get into the money issue, really, because now when you're dealing with mental health, some people manage money differently. I'm going to put myself in this. For instance, at the beginning, I was finding that I was shopping more online. I had to really check myself and say, Kitty, where are you going? It's a pandemic. You're not going to be able to wear that this year. 
<laughs> I've never been an online shopper. And of course, us being at home and not really wanting to be out and exposed to COVID has made people uh, shop on Amazon a bit more. You see, Amazon stock has skyrocketed since March. So you oh, can tell yes, everyone's yeah. on Amazon. And uh, even the ads that you see on Instagram and Facebook that pop up, I've never been a sucker for those. But I found myself one day, I'm I'm sitting there and an ad popped up for that little band that you put on under your wig. And I was like, hold on, I'm going to try this. <laughs> Waist trainer. And I then I was like, hold on, I never shop online like this. This is insane. <laughs> it's, it's, yes, mismanagement of money or impulsive spending happened, right? Yes. With myself being a financial educator and having worked with uh, many people in the community from different socioeconomic statuses, I, I've seen people who just don't have it and they're broke and they still find a way to spend money, charge it to a credit card. But even people who have the access to the money, they make a good salary or six figures. Some people are still living check to check. And then you want to find out the reasons behind that. I think mental health and anxiety play a large part such as, and I don't necessarily want to pick on, on women in particular, but what I notice is when women are stressed and if they have access to the money, we usually go on a shopping spree. We want to buy yeah. ourselves something nice and and try mm-hmm. to soothe that stress that we're going through. Not saying that men don't do it because they do it as well. But what I found, and, and I'm not a therapist, you're the therapist here, but, but from people that I've worked with, stress is definitely a driver to spend more money. Have you had Absolutely. any clients, or I don't know if you can even, even discuss this, but just in general, not anyone specific, where some of their mental health issues have been from their financial issues? Yes, believe it or not, a lot of times, especially when you deal with relationship issues, I would say just to throw a number out there, there's a high percentage. So maybe 70% of relationship issues end up being in regards to money. Money is the stressor in the relationship. And as far as individuals, absolutely, that impulsive spending. And even men, men have been found to shop for... (laughs) things that help them survive during a pandemic. Gun sales are up. I, I don't know if you ever watched the show where people are protecting themselves and they create bunkers for just in case some type of something happens and they need to protect them and their family. Oh yeah, yeah, it's, it's an interesting show. So they, it's just about survival. So they buy all these items to survive if there was some type of, I'm just gonna be funny about it, but zombie apocalypse or something. But a lot of money has been spent in that area right now during the pandemic and a lot of impulsive buying where so, people aren't thinking ahead of their finances. Definitely. And I know I haven't heard of the bunker situation, but of course, early in the pandemic, everyone was, was buying guns and ammunition. I, I do own a firearm and I remember going to purchase the bullets and everyone was sold out and I couldn't believe it. I said, this is insane. I think me and my mom drove to like six different stores because there was this stress and anxiety of not knowing what was to come. Mm-hmm. And, and everyone was like, just say, going crazy. Like, yeah, we're going to be in this apocalypse, prepare. What if the stores run out of food, protect yourself. And, and I, I think this was around the time, I think probably before I was closing on my home, I closed on my home at the very beginning of the pandemic. Prior, I had lived in a high rise, a very secure high rise building downtown. And I never had a, an issue with security or worrying about someone breaking in. You have to get past the front desk to even get on the elevator. Going from that to being in a, in a neighborhood by myself where I did not know anyone, everyone was like, protect yourself. And you, you want to do this and you want to do that. I think 
those who didn't necessarily live in a secure area per se were really going crazy on the firearm purchases. <laughs> but the bunker, that's, that's totally new. I have to check that out. This is another thing. And I believe it was also a factor in certain people um, overspending. People were buying out the grocery stores. Look at the toilet paper situation. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and then when they were able to buy the toilet paper, they were overdoing it, right? Mothers who had babies, when they were out of water bottles, they started buying the baby water. They started buying baby wipes because they couldn't get the tissue. So not thinking about people who actually have babies and need these things. Oh, it was, it was horrible. Definitely. There were even people buying extra refrigerators for their garage to fill it with food. And um, refrigerators mm-hmm. are not cheap. I was like, where are people just getting this extra money to go in? It's, it's been very interesting, the financial situation, but I've always thought finances have had a major impact on someone's mental health status. And it's funny that you brought up the relationship issue. So most of your clients or some of your clients, I know you deal with more uh, families, but have you been focused more on the couples therapy? Because when we look at marriages, or if we, even if we look at people who live together, money is always a factor. It's actually one of the number one issues for divorce, aside from infidelity. Is that a, a huge focus of the, the couples or relationship therapy that you're doing, or it's just a small part? It comes with everything. So if you work with the individual I often bring the family into the situation because we are who we are based on our upbringing. I'm a licensed substance abuse therapist as well as a licensed associate marriage and family therapist. In my education, I look at things from a relational perspective and not just an individual. So if I'm dealing with the individual, it's about them talking about their issues, but it's also about their upbringing and how they respond to others Mm -hmm. so they can see it from a whole relational issue and not just an individual issue. I I really like the explanation on that. That gives me a better insight as to what you're doing within your practice and with your clients. I want to move on and discuss mental health therapy in the African-American community. As I mentioned earlier, sometimes like we as African-Americans are not always open and discussing mental health. And I don't think it's pushed to to children of in that particular ethnic category as well. So I want to know from your standpoint, why do you think there's always been a stigma in the Black community on going to therapy or discussing mental health itself? And how do you convince African-Americans to have those health, those discussions on mental health, convincing people that it, there's nothing wrong with seeing a therapist and how it doesn't make you crazy? Um, yeah. Well, it's still very hard to get people in African-American community as well as the Latino community involved in therapy. A lot of the reasons is the way people are brought up. It's the generational cycle that happens. We think about our families and think about secrets. Think about the secrets in your family. And then when you think about the secrets in your family, think about how it's dealt with. People don't like to talk about it. It's hush. And then if you discover it, you find this information and then you're like, oh my God, (laughs) 
like it's shock it's shocking but it, it's the the language that's usually giving the silence is what happens in the family stays in the family mm-hmm. we, we're gonna deal with this so I think that has really framed us individually in how we deal with our issues so instead of thinking oh well I'm gonna go see a therapist about this is more well I can deal with it I'm strong enough I got this until things get really, 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 really bad and it's out of control or we wait till systems tell us that we need to go get help. And when I mean systems, I mean doctors, medical, criminal justice system, child and welfare system, right? We wait until those things happen before we realize, okay, something must be wrong. But the good thing is that Recently, especially during the pandemic, I did see an uptick in African-American clients who are willing to get the help needed. But it was it is the younger generation. But that says a lot. That says a lot that there will be more they're understanding how therapy can help them. But you made some really good points there, because even within my family, and I can remember certain points, not only from childhood, but even being an adult where we might, me and my siblings, we want to know everything about like our family. And we've tried to build out a family tree. And on my maternal grandmother's side of the family, there's always been this, I'd say stigma of not discussing like her background because she left her family at a very early age and cut off communication. So a lot of my my aunts and uncles, even my mom, don't know my grandmother's side of the family. And that's always been a mystery to us. And, and if we ask about it, I think some people have found things out like as, as they as they they've gotten older. But if we ask about it, sort of being the younger people in the family, it's always ignore the question, don't discuss it. Or even if you have those family members who've done something a little crazy, people don't want to discuss it. If the children ask about it, it's like, always like the, to bring this up. And I think that we hear this a lot in the African-American community. Like as children, think back to when you were a child and you ask a question and your parents say, stay in a child's place. Or this mm-hmm, is grown absolutely. people's business. <laughs> <laughs> or even the fact if you go on a family reunion and all of it, you hear something like, uh-uh, don't go by him. No, nobody go by him. Don't you go. No, nobody sit on his lap. Don't go near him. Don't let him touch you. And you don't even know what that's about. And then as you get older, you find out that, hey, there's sex molesters right in the family. There's there's all type. There's DV, domestic violence that happening that happens right in the family. But we don't name it what it is. Mm-hmm. Right. And the families. And, yeah. And I, my, actually, I'd say the person in, in my immediate family who's pushed mental health has been one of my younger sisters. I think, and she's a baby. And, and I want to say, I always attribute the fact that my mom spoiled her until she was an adult. Like I remember I, I was living in Dallas at the time and she was still in high school. We're, we're eight years apart. And I remember she was probably 17 or 18 years old. And we went into a store. She wanted a pair of shoes at, at 18. And my mom was like, no, I'm not buying the shoes. My other sister had just had children. My mom was like a grandma for the first time. And she was any extra money she had was always going towards the grandchildren. And my sister laid on the floor grown woman laid on the floor and started crying in the store having a a temper tantrum as a grown person and 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 I think it several issues can affect a person's mental health but I think the fact that she was always like coddled 
And we never let her do anything on her own. I think I was a part of that as well. Cause I'm like, I'm the big sister. I'm going to do it. I hope you with it. And she never really learned to function on her own for a very long time. And then when she was out in the world and had the function on her own, it led to a high level of stress. And then she started to, to see a therapist. She really started to push that towards like our immediate family and discussing mental health, why it's important, why you have to have a non-biased person sort of in there to hear, hear out your issues. Because if we're trying to discuss the issue with a family member or sometimes even a close friend, they're going to be biased. They know everything about you. And they're like, well, if you didn't do X, Y, and Z, (laughs) gosh, but mental health is so important. And I I definitely think we need to have those, those healthy discussions. Do you, within your practice, do you try to only focus on the African-American community or it's really open to everyone? Or do you have any initiatives to really drive that out? Yeah, my practice is really open to everyone, especially since I specialize in substance use disorder. However, I do try to work with families of color just because I'm really big in in changing generational patterns, whether it's substance use, criminal justice issues, relationship issues that go on for generational to generation. But because I do not take insurance, that definitely has impacted my uh, clientele from being just African-American. With that, I definitely need to figure out how to get grant money to really have clients come see me for free, uh, in a sense. Or not even free, but to use grant money to get the population that I want to help out more But in my full-time job, I do see a lot of people of color. Let me get this right. Did you say you do not take insurance? I do not take insurance. It's a cash, it's cash only or how does that work? It's cash only. You can use any option. Insurance, when you're on an insurance panel, they, it's very hard to balance that, especially in a private practice, because it's a lot of work. You have to also give people diagnosis. And I sometimes don't feel like everything needs a diagnosis. When okay, you, I got you are, yeah, when you're dealing with insurance, you're under their codes and, and you have to do what they need you to do and put people in a box. I don't do that. And there's nothing wrong with people who do because, of course, it's, it's funding you. This is how you're getting your money. But I just don't believe in, I just don't feel like I need to do that to, to help people out for them to seek therapy and diagnosis follow you on your medical paperwork. That is absolutely true. And not only on medical paperwork, but for people who are working in the corporate world and you move up to a high level executive role, I've heard some companies actually will request access to those particular details. They want to know if you are quote unquote stable to run the company. If you're going to be a COO or CEO or even some high level visible position where stakeholders in the company may do some research on you. I I actually like that, but um, sort of that's actually getting me to my next question where I wanted to discuss people who don't have insurance. How do they go about seeing a therapist? If they don't have insurance, they don't have the money to cover it. Are there resources that would actually help someone get into a therapy session? Yes, there is. So Taraji Henson has a program that she has grant money and funding to help 
people seek therapists for free. So she pays the therapist and then people who are looking for a therapist, they can be linked to someone for free. Okay. So that sounds amazing. Do you have the resource for that? The name of that program? Yes. It's called the Boris Lawrence Henson Foundation. Boris Lawrence Henson Foundation. And we'll list that in the, um, in the show notes as well, for those of you listening and you want to explore that, but that sounds like a really great resource for those who really want to speak to someone and don't necessarily have the, the financial situation set up to cover that. Mm-hmm. Earlier in our discussion, we, we talked about mental health overall, mental health in the pandemic and what people are going through. What are natural ways that you would recommend to combat anxiety? I know earlier um, you mentioned aromatherapy, which I am a huge fanatic of, of aromatherapy and essential oils. I even, I keep my lavender oil on deck when I'm traveling to help me sleep. And I know you mentioned your teas that you're coming out with, but what are some suggestions that you can give to those listening to help with whatever they're going through right now? So challenge your thoughts is my first thing. When you're a lot of times, especially during this pandemic and then the political issues that we were having, it's a lot. And then with everything around us. So challenge your thoughts. So when I say challenge your thoughts, so maybe you're thinking, oh, we're never, this pandemic is never going to end. Change that, rephrase what you're thinking and try to make it more positive. This pandemic will end. We're getting closer to a cure. So just the wording on how we say things daily, which brings me to gratitude. Practice gratitude in this time. Although you may find yourself extremely bored, especially if you do live alone, if you are uh, single, and if that is the case, you have to figure out ways to find that gratitude. I'm thankful I am able to buy food to eat, even though the prices are going up. I'm thankful that I have this place that I live in. Just finding gratitude, finding things to be thankful for every day that you wake up, that helps a lot. I like that. So this year, I had this idea last year to implement a gratitude jar at home. And Mm -hmm. I saw someone else doing it. And I was like, oh, this is a really great idea because sometimes our lives keep us so busy. And sometimes we'll forget those things that we accomplished or the things that we are actually thankful for. I have a online on my computer, I have an Excel file, which tracks my accomplishments by month. And, And that's like really in relation to my brand, but I wasn't tracking anything personally. I purchased a jar this year and these cards, um, they're heart-shaped cards. And typically, not every day, I've, I've been trying to get into the habit of doing every day, but at least a few times a week, I'll write on the card something that I'm grateful for, and I'll throw it in the jar. And the end of the year, what I would like to start as a tradition is going in and randomly choosing so many to review and self-reflect, because of course, end of year is always the time we, we self-reflect, we goal set, and just really have an open discussion with your loved ones or significant other on those things that you are grateful for. So I think that part about challenging your thoughts and that self-reflection part, it's it's very important, not only in self-care, but the mental health aspect as well. Exactly. Exercise, eating healthy. I know for me, I completely fell off in exercising and I'm not even a person who really goes hard, honestly, but 
it makes so much of a difference. It really does. Because when I got back to it, I realized that I had more energy again. I was able to do things even though I wasn't back to my old schedule. But eating healthy and exercise definitely helps with mental health. Those are good points. And I started exercising on a regular basis in August. And I'd, I've noticed the difference in my daily energy, how I feel about myself, especially since we can't get out and really go anywhere. It, it helps keep your mind off. So I agree with everything that you've said. Katie, I've enjoyed this conversation that we've been having. It's very important to discuss these topics and really provide those resources to the community. And I know we're nearing the end of the podcast. So before we end, I, I just have a few questions for you. And I know that you you have your own practice, life and family guidance. I always like to know more about what that first year in business has been like. Of course, I work with entrepreneurs as well and and helping them understand business from a financial aspect. So I'd say overall, not necessarily focus on the finances. How do you recap that first year in business for you? The first year in business was honestly, I really didn't know what I was doing in the facts of being able to, how I was going to budget. So that's something I had to do is learn and go. But now I am so much better that now that I created my second business, I'm ahead. I'm ahead. I know how to start as far as getting your business credit and making sure you have accounts and all those things for tax purposes. And I'm just more confident this time around than I was in my first year. Oh, that's definitely good to hear. And I think it takes a few hiccups. And I always like to get into the statistics that the SPA provides about business. The first two years of business are, are definitely the most difficult. And I, I always say people have to be resilient to keep going because everything won't be perfect. There will be times where you're not making money. Sometimes there can be consecutive months and you have to really have the mindset and resilience to just keep going and know that something will grow from the things that you are doing. We're sort of ending and closing out the podcast. I like to ask my guests three questions in relation to the topic of the show. My first question for you is what has been one of the uh, most monumental milestones that you've reached, not only in your career, but uh, you can consider your business as well? My biggest milestones have been being able to be an entrepreneur and balance everything from my family to um, still working a, a full-time job and having these two businesses. That to me is a milestone. Okay. And I, I think I would know the answer to this question, but I'm not 100% sure. What keeps you motivated to, to move forward? My customers, my clients, just being able to know that I'm helping people in my family. And then our, our last question definitely focused on money because that's, that's the thing I like to discuss. What is one of your most memorable moments in life in relation to finances? It can be something of when you've learned to properly manage money, when you've made a certain amount within your business or within your career. What's one of those money memories that you have that just stands out? When my bank account was more than $3,000 and it just sat there. 
Oh, that's thank you. That's that's actually really good because I think as we grow, <laughs> no, and as we grow in our career, as we grow in business, we realize our life drastically changes as it relates to finance, especially when we start to make more money. And mm-hmm. and I, I always like to look back and reflect on growing up and being in college. And I think I think I, I like to say everybody was broke in college, even right. coming out of college those first few years. I had times where my account would hit the negative. But when it's almost like when the money came, you spent it. It was always a bill. I always remember yeah. those small bonuses from work and, and some people would use their bonus for uh, savings or they had to pay their taxes on their home or something. And I'm like, wait, I need this money to pay bills. Right. <laughs> and so when you get to a point where you don't necessarily have to spend, spend money immediately and it right. can sit there, that's a blessing. That's a whole bless. No matter how much money it is, because I remember where I would I would get one thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollars, and I thought it was I thought it was so much money. And I and of course we both know sometimes that can be that can all go towards expenses in one month. Exactly. Um, when you sort of get past that point of needing to constantly spend the money just because it's there or mm-hmm. having having an emergency bill. I always like to tell people this is this is just me and I, but I'm sure it re- resonates with other people. It seems like every time the money came there was always some expense, some emergency, mm-hmm. your car breaks down. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was something crazy <laughs> and you're like, "Well, I just got the money and it's gone already." So <laughs> Exactly. So yes, definitely um not being able or not having to touch money that's in your in your account, whether it's checking or savings is a huge blessing. Yes. So we've had a great conversation and I, I would love to have you back as a guest. Yes, this was so fun. <laughs> we can definitely touch on other, other topics as it relates to, to mental health. But for those who are listening, where can they learn more information about you? I have a website, which is www.adeselfcare. That's spelled A-D-E selfcare.com. Or you can follow me on Instagram at Ade Selfcare, A-D-E-S-E-L-S-C-A-R-E. And if you want to follow my business page, it's Life and Family Guidance on Facebook. Where can they purchase your products? Our journal is currently on Amazon as well as Barnes and Noble. It's called Our Journal From Me to You. If you go to my Instagram page at Ade Self-Care, there is a link in the bio. For those of you who are listening, I'll list those links in the notes of the show. Make sure you follow Katie on social media, visit her website. And Katie, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I hope the listeners have enjoyed as well. And until next Thanks time, for listening. Stay connected with Angel online on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Miss RMBA. That's M-I-S-S-R-M-B-A. Be sure to subscribe and review. Join us next time as we continue to empower you through milestones, motivation, and money. 